Again, it is a great honor and privilege to be able to stand before you this evening. I am taken aback by the great love and hospitality that has been shown to me and my family. Although I must tell you, I, 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 it, it of course was no surprise that a congregation such as this, as the White Oak Congregation, displays such great love and such great hospitality. You are known for that. And I'm very thankful to have been asked to be with you this week. I'm very thankful for your, your sound eldership and, of course, your, your wonderful uh, sound gospel preacher and all who, of course, work here, uh, Tommy and Evangelism and so many others uh, who take an active role day after day in making this congregation a light that shines in a, in a world of darkness and in a community that, that needs light. And what a great honor it is. I have been looking forward to this meeting, been looking forward to this time to be with you all from the, the very day that uh, Brother Jim had called. And I'm just very honored to have been asked and very honored to be here with you. What a wonderful meal that, that we had, we shared this uh, afternoon. What a great time of, of fellowship. And I am, of course, uh, looking forward to every night of the meeting this week. It is the case that when we have meetings that go through Wednesday evening, Sunday night, if you look at the number of lessons or sermons that, that are preached, really Sunday night is a halfway mark, isn't it, in many regards. And I hope that everyone who is present tonight will be able to make it back again, uh, Lord willing, every night. I, I like to make it a practice to let everyone know uh, ahead of time what the lessons will be. So perhaps if you do have a friend or a neighbor or someone with whom you're studying, perhaps you can draw some interest in bringing them by telling them, well, the preacher in the gospel meeting is going to preach on this subject either one or, or, or one night or the other. And tomorrow evening, we're going to focus our minds on the ideas behind atheism. Uh, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. And Tuesday evening, we're going to study the church of the New Testament, the one church for which Jesus died and purchased with his blood. The one church that we all can be members of this very day. And Wednesday night, we're going to focus our minds on the thought of being nearer to God. And I hope that you will have an opportunity to uh, be present at, at every service. But tonight, we, of course, are going to be focusing our thoughts upon wherefore comfort one another with these words and I know that many here this evening in this congregation, you, you have gone through some difficult times, especially here lately. I, I know that the members at Union Grove, we have many that have gone through some difficult trials in their lives. We have many that are grieving over the loss of loved ones. And, and we, of course, as Christians, are, we are not immune to sorrow, but we do have a comforter, the God of all comfort and the God of all peace that surpasses all of our understanding. And so tonight I want us to focus on that, the idea primarily being found in one word, and that's hope. We all need hope, do we not? We all find ourselves desiring to have hope, and we never get enough of it, do we? We never have enough hope, and tonight I hope that we can focus our minds upon that one word, there was a bombing or a bomber mission in World War II. The military had been located in northern Africa in Benghazi. And there was a target in Italy and the bomber crew was 
to set out to go and to strike this target. The mission, however, seemed to doom from the very beginning. They had to fly at such a low altitude. They had to keep uh, radio silence. And as they were starting out from their mission, they, they got uh, several hundred miles away from their target, and they realized that the gauges were not working properly. So they had to turn around. They broke radio silence. And as they turned around, all of the gauges completely stopped working. And as they were flying back to the base, they had really no guidance system at all. They flew over the base some 500 miles and crashed in the desert. We know, according to the records, that many of the crew members survived the crash. The pilot, the captain there, kept a diary. And you can read that diary, and you can read about all of the problems and all of the woes that they were suffering at that time. It wasn't until 18 years later that that crash site was found. But I want us to focus on what the captain wrote, the last entry in this diary. He wrote, we have lost all hope. And when the crash site was found, there was food. There was water still aboard that plane. So why did they die? They did not die of starvation. They, they certainly did not die of dehydration. They died because... They gave up because they had lost all hope. Well, as I look around this evening, we all have one thing of, of importance in common. We're all humans. We're all mortal. We were all brought into this world, and we're all going to leave this world. Now, there are two ways that we can leave. We can either leave by being caught up in the air with Jesus Christ at the second coming, or we can leave by crossing over the Jordan, facing the veil of death. And there's lots of theories and thoughts concerning death. Some believe in the theory of reincarnation. Some believe that you can die and then come back in some other form. And if you have lived in such a way that would benefit others, you could come back as a higher form of life. That's not scriptural. Others believe in a place called purgatory. That is to say that when one dies, he will go into a place where his sins are purged. And when his sins are purged to a certain degree where he becomes clean of those sins, then he can then ascend up into the heavenly places. Again, not scriptural. Some teach the theory of what is called annihilation. And there is no hope in that. That is the idea that we are just living creatures. We're like bugs. You step on the bug, the bug is here one moment, and then it ceases to exist. There is no hope in annihilation. But that, of course, is not scriptural either. Then there's the idea of universalism. And that teaches, of course, that it does not matter how you live. It does not matter whether or not you believe and have faith. And it does not matter whether or not you obey the gospel of Christ. That particular teaching teaches that everyone is going to go to a place called paradise. That belief is also widely accepted by so many today because that particular belief, along with many other false beliefs, bring comfort, but they bring a false hope. Tonight, we want to focus on the real hope. We want to focus on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man but once to die, and after that the judgment. We go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and we read how God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, we are told by the wisdom writer that when the body dies, the soul will return unto the Lord who gave it and the body unto the dust of the ground from whence it came. James reminds us in James 2, verse 26, that the body without the soul or the spirit is dead. We find in Genesis chapter 25, in verse 8, we read of Abraham. In verse 17, we read of Ishmael. And we read that they both died and they gave up the spirit or gave up the ghost. Well, again, we are going to leave this realm in one of two fashions. We are either going to die or we're going to see the Lord and when he comes again. And that is our thought this evening as we're going to focus primarily on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through verse 18. But before we enter into that particular course of study, we must understand that we, in order to have hope, must overcome our fears. And the only way to overcome our fears is to be taught and to have knowledge. And that is what we see in this great book of 1 Thessalonians. And notice that Paul is going to address the church in Thessalonica. And in each chapter, he's going to reference the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in the very first chapter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, that Paul speaks unto the church and he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It's difficult sometimes, isn't it, to wait? Waiting is not, of course, very easy for most of us. We have a limit to the time or to the amount that we can wait. But in order to have hope, we must wait. So many lose that hope because they are tired or weary about waiting on God. We find, however, the psalmist reminds us now, what wait I for, Psalm 39, verse 7. He says, my hope is in thee. And oftentimes we find that people will give up their hope because they have stopped waiting on God. They've stopped waiting on God in timing. A lot of people say, well, why didn't God do this during this time when I needed this or when I wanted this? Also, people give up on God concerning the theme. They will say, well, I would have done it differently. Why did God have to choose this path for me? Why did God have to do this or bring this into my life? Some lose hope and lose patience when it comes to the thoughts of God. Some say, well, I thought that God would have done this or I thought that he would have intervened. And we find that those are reasons oftentimes that people lose hope. But Paul is telling them now to wait, to wait for Jesus. Notice he says, his son from heaven, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believeth in him, or whoever believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, the monogenes, the one and only who was brought into the world in this fashion. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is the one who'd emptied himself, who came to this world, Philippians 2 and verse 5 who took upon himself the form of a servant, who gave up that essence and came to this world for you and for me. 
Now Paul is reminding them about this Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And he says, wait for, for him. Notice that he is going to come, notice, from heaven. We find that as he ascended into heaven, he has now sat down on the right hand of God. And this same Jesus, as the angel said in Acts chapter 1 to the apostles as they're looking up, he said unto them, why are you looking up? This same Jesus is going to return in this same fashion. And now Paul is reminding the church, as we likewise need to be reminded, to wait for Jesus because he is going to come again. But as he comes again, notice that he is going to deliver us. We find that Paul says that Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That idea is literally a 180 degree turn. We were going and heading down a path that led to destruction, but because of Jesus Christ and our faith and obedience unto Him, we now have been turned around. We're no longer going to a place where we're going to receive wrath, but rather we are walking toward a place wherein is great joy, wherein is great love and comfort. And so now we find that, that this great hope of being delivered from this wrath is a true and real matter for the Christian, for the child of God. Revelation 22 and verse 20. We read where John says, Even so, Lord, or even so, come Lord Jesus. You see, this hope of, of expecting Him, this hope of, of waiting for Him to come from heaven is what is going to help us to continue living faithfully as the children of God, there is no greater sacrifice that has ever been given than that of Jesus Christ. And we find that even though we, of course, were in a state of condemnation, that God commendeth his love toward us, even though while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 8. So there is a great hope. But that hope is in the expectancy and the desire for Jesus Christ to come again. Now let's go forward, if you will, to the very next chapter. We find in First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Again, Paul is going to address the issue of the second coming of our Lord. And notice what he says. For He says, for what is our hope? Or our joy, our crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming? For ye are our glory and our joy. Well, there's our word. He says again, for what is our hope? But again, what type of hope? Not just any type of hope, and certainly not a, a false hope, but rather a hope that is found in evidence. Christianity is a belief, it is a system of faith based upon evidence, based upon facts. And we can find hope in that evidence. We can find hope in those facts. We find in Romans 8 verse 24 that Paul says, for we are saved by hope. But again, not just any hope, but rather a hope that has a great desire and followed by a great expectation. I'm reminded of an illustration concerning hope. This little boy was standing at the top of the escalators. And as he was looking down, he was at a, a local shopping mall. 
And he was waiting at the top of the escalators, just staring at, at those escalator steps as, as they came and as they folded under and as they continued to pass by. Well, one of the shopkeepers had been there, and he had noticed the little boy for, for several minutes, and he got to, to be a little curious, and he went over to the little boy, and he said, is everything okay? The little boy said, oh, yes, everything's fine. You see, I just dropped my gum on these steps, and I'm waiting for it to come back up. <laughs> You see, that is hope. That is desire with expectation. There are so many today who, who do, would not desire to see the Lord come because they're not ready. There are so many today who, who aren't even expecting the Lord to come. Peter tells us of that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and verse 4. That there are so many people that said, well, things have continued on. Our fathers are asleep and they've continued on ever since. And the Lord is not coming, but brethren, He is. And whether He comes while we are alive or whether He comes after we have died, the main point is, is that we can have hope because He said He will come again. And we find as well that Paul goes on to say not only about this hope, but joy. John 15, verse 11, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, that your joy may be full. Where do you find joy this evening? And where is your hope? Because the two are intertwined together. You have no joy when you have no hope. You have no abundant happiness. That's the idea of joy. But we can have great joy because we have hope. But notice as well, he goes on to write about this great crown, a, a crown of rejoicing. I'm amazed that every four years when the Olympics come around, that all of these trained athletes, they compete and they, they try so hard to, uh, to, to compete in the field that they're competing in. But why do they do it? To receive a medal, whether it be gold or silver or bronze. But whether it is gold or whether it is silver or whether it is bronze, it isn't eternal. It isn't the type of crown that the faithful child of God can hope for. Uh, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 verse 4 that, that this particular crown is an incorruptible crown, not a corruptible one. So we can, of course, have great joy in our desire and in our expectation. We can have a great hope in receiving this crown. Notice we find as well that Paul goes on to ask this question. I find this very interesting. He asks them this. He says, are ye not even, ye are, ye, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? To, to put it plainly, he's saying this. He's saying, aren't you planning to be there? Aren't you planning to be part of this great group of believers? Aren't you planning to, to be there when the Lord comes with this great desire and with this great expectation? And then he goes on to remind them, for ye are our glory and joy. I remember Barry and Gloria White at the Westside Congregation in Salem, Virginia. Barry uh, was one of the elders there at this time. And his wife, Gloria, worked with my wife, Cindy. One of the... Uh, well, I always get a little choked up when I think about Barry and Gloria because I, I, I love them so dearly. And they're the ones that taught us the truth. But all it took was one question. Would you and your husband like to study the Bible with me and my husband? Do you remember the one who taught you the truth? 
Do you remember the one who, who, who took his time or her time and, and, and showed such a great love and concern for you, for, for your eternal soul? How joyful are you for them? You see, because the one that taught us the truth provided us with this great hope. Now we get over to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. And again, Paul is going to address the second coming in the very last verse, in verse 13, when he says, To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. Again, we find here that Paul is addressing the fact that, that we must look toward that coming. We must also be faithful when that coming happens. I look around and I, at many of our wonderful brothers and sisters who are here tonight. And I do not know all of those who are members of the body of Christ here at White Oak. But, but I, I can feel very confident in saying that as I look out tonight, I am very sure that there are many brothers and sisters who should be here but are not. Like Union Grove, we have many brothers and sisters in Christ who started out faithful and, and who started out with a great zeal and a great desire and, and, and looking for that hope and, and having that hope. But somewhere along the way, they lost that hope. And so what did they do? By losing that hope, they lost their faith. Paul says, no, you have to remain faithful to the end. And notice the one who has saved us in the one is, is the one likewise who will keep us until the very end. Revelation 2 and verse 10, Jesus says, remain faithful unto death and thou shalt receive that crown of righteousness. Now at that particular time, that meant giving your life even if it meant death for Jesus Christ. But we must likewise remain faithful unto the end. But unfortunately, many, instead of remaining faithful, they become fed up and they do not continue on in the faith. They lose that hope. But then notice that Paul makes this connection here. He says that to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. In order to have this great hope, we have to be holy as he is holy. We have to desire and seek and strive to, to live out that holiness in our lives. I'm always reminded of the events that took place in Numbers chapter 25. You may remember the events that took place. There, of course, the Israelites were doing unscrupulous things with the women of Moab. And, of course, they were worshiping Bel Peor. And Moses, of course, gave the great decree that anyone caught doing these things should be put to death. And remember that there was a man that walked by, just as bold as he could be, and walked by with this Midianite woman into the tent. And who was it but Phinehas, who took that javelin, and he went in and he defended the holiness. But now, we, of course, are not going to be asked to ever do anything that extreme. We are, are, are a peaceful group of people. But we should be willing to defend holiness and the righteousness of God even to the very end. And notice that Paul reminds us here. He says, before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints... 
Now, Paul is going to, to address this issue in a, a little bit greater fashion as we read now our text. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 18. Now, Paul is going to bring up the fact that, that these beloved Christians, these faithful children of God are going to, to be together with Jesus when he returns. And he says, beginning in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which, notice this, have no hope. Now, who are they? Who are the ones who do not have hope? Those who are outside of Christ. And Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Oftentimes, we read that word, ignorant, and what we think of is we think of someone who does not have the mental uh, capacity to understand what is being taught or what is being said. But in the biblical sense here, it is the idea of ignoring. Paul says, don't ignore these things. Don't put these things out of your mind. Do not ignore them, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. This is the idea of those who have previously passed on. The body as it is viewed, the dead body, the tabernacle is viewed as, as, and looks as if it is sleeping. And we find that this particular situation here, Paul is addressing the concerns of the church. Now, we're not always given insight into the questions that the church asks, but because of what is written we can then, through uh, implication, understand that this was a concern that needed to be addressed. So, so what was the concern here in Thessalonica? Well, remember that Acts chapter 17, verse 11. We read that those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they searched the word of God daily. So apparently there was some problem or confusion here over the second coming, and, and they must have believed that those who have already died are going to miss out on this great event. But Paul says, no, that's not the case. He says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We find that in Revelation 14, verse 13, Blessed are they that die in the Lord. And those that are in Jesus Christ are, are those who have gone on to a place known as paradise. Some teach the, the doctrine or belief of soul sleeping. They, they teach that, that once the soul leaves the body, that the soul is in, in, in a state of, of where it, it does not have any recognition of where it is or, or in what condition that it is. But we read about the rich man and Lazarus. And we read, of course, how Lazarus was in the, uh, Abraham's bosom and the rich man was in torments and he knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what was taking place. So this doesn't teach the doctrine of soul sleeping, but it does teach that those who are faithful, that die in the Lord, are in His care, they're in His protection. And so when Jesus comes again, notice what is going to happen. He says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. No, notice that it is confirmed. By the word of the Lord, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Notice in essence he's saying that we're not going to have our blessings any sooner. But, but what is going to take place in verse 16, we read that for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice all of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 is going to take place in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen so quickly. 
The dead in Christ will rise first, and we, of course, will meet them, as Paul begins to tell us in verse 17. He says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now notice this. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So what do we do with this information? What, what does Paul want us to understand? He wants us to understand that we find comfort and we find hope in this great promise. That's the very next verse. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It is, of course, the case tonight that many are grieving. There are many, of course, that are struggling with grief. But tonight, even though we may find our hearts full of grief, we need not sorrow as those who have no hope. Brother J.C., and I know you know this well, we don't ever get over grief. We don't ever get over the loss of a loved one. But we can go through. And as we go through, we have the God of all comfort and the God of all peace. I'd like for us to focus on an example of this if you will, go back with me to the Old Testament and as we're going to look at in a great example in the book of Job, in Job chapter 1. We're going to see how Job was a man whose heart was so full of grief. He was a man who thought that there was no hope. He was a man who had lost all hope. But he was also a man who found hope again. And when we think about Job, we can think about and read of a man who was in such a, a devastated position in his life. We read about a man who had lost everything. In chapter 1, in verse 14, we find that he begins to lose his wealth. He begins to lose his oxen and his donkeys. In verse 16, we find that he loses his sheep. The fires come from heaven and devoured the sheep. In verse 17, we find that the Chaldeans came and, and they stole his camels. Here is a man, now he has lost his wealth. He has lost just about everything you can imagine as far as his prominence goes. And then he receives such devastating news. We find the servant comes in and he tells them that his children had been killed. I, I, I don't know how it, it would feel to lose a child. There may be some here tonight who have gone through that terrible experience. And here's a man named Job. Lost it all. Lost his children. We find later on he's sitting in a pile of ashes with pot shirts, scraping his body. He's covered from head to toe in boils. But he also, by... Of course, the scriptures, we find that he lost his wife. In Job chapter 2 and verse 9, notice that his wife said, curse God and die. Now, I, I am not very quick to bring condemnation upon Mrs. Job. I do not agree with what she said. I do not think that what she said was right. But let's just for a moment 
Think about what she lost too. Did not she lose everything that she had loved? Didn't she lose her security? I think just the very character of Job. I know sometimes we're so quick to, to, to be harsh and hard on, on Mrs. Job, but I think the righteous Job himself would have, have likewise had a righteous companion in many regards. But notice that here she is. She is facing the same loss of hope as her husband. And now we find that Job is completely devastated. So what do we do when a loved one a brother or sister in Christ is going through grief? Well, there are many things, of course, that we, we should do. And there are many things that we shouldn't do. For example, there are, are many reactions to grief. For example, some will attack the grief. They'll seek out such things as drugs and alcohol, and they'll try to attack the grief and to try to find a remedy for it. Others will deny the grief. They'll run away from it. They'll say, well, I, I'm not in, in, in any condition to grieve. I, I am fine. And, and therefore, they deny that they're even going through grief. Some will attempt to try to analyze the grief and try to understand it better. Why am I feeling this way? Some fall into complete despair. Others get busy. They, they try to, to fill their days with activities and to keep their minds focused on the, the events of the day. All of these are ways in which many of us handle grief. But one thing is for certain. Not a single one of us grieves the same way. We all grieve differently. And so therefore there are some things that we should avoid. Oh yes, we all want to seek words of comfort and we all want to do what we can to, to bear this grief and to bear this burden of our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But sometimes just being there and not even saying a, a word at all is enough. I believe that the smartest thing that Bildaz, Eliphaz and, and Bildad, Eliphaz and Zophar did was when they got to Job, they were quiet for a week. They didn't say a word, Job 2 and verse 13. They just sat down with him. They were there. He knew they were there. He knew and felt their presence. We can't and shouldn't say things like, I know what you're going through. Even though we may have experienced something very similar in our lives, we do not know what that loved one is going through. And we find as well that many times just being there putting our arms around those we love and just letting them know that we care is all we should do. But I want us to notice how Job is going to grow. Remember, Job begins, of course, uh, the great accuser, Satan, accuses God uh, of being unfair. We studied about that this morning, didn't we? The righteousness of God is revealed. Satan said unto God, you're not being fair for taking care of this man Job. If, if you were to, to bring harm upon him because you've built this hedge around him, then he will, of course, deny you. So the great accuser stands and, and accuses God of being unrighteous. Accuses Job of just being someone who, who is in, in, in it for the, the wealth and the prosperity. But that's not the case. Because we find that Job is a growing man. He grows in hope. I want us to see that this evening. Turn with me over to Job chapter 9. 
As we see that Job has found himself in a place of of despair, he's found himself completely devastated without any any hope whatsoever. And in Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, I want us to notice the words here. When he says, The earth is given unto the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? In essence, he's saying, There is no hope for me. He says, Now the days, or my days, are swifter than a post. That's, that's a footman, a, a, a runner. That they flee away, they see no good, they are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. Job's words now are indicating a complete state of hopelessness. But Job doesn't stay in that state. Notice that Job at one moment and at one point thinks there's no hope, but then he gets a little glimmer. That little glimmer of hope. And now we find in chapter 13, turn there with me, to chapter 13 and verses 17 through verse 19. Job is going to make this statement. He goes from a man of having no hope to a man of saying there is a glimmer of hope. When we read, he says, Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. But he says, Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. He says, Well, okay, now there is hope. But but where is this hope going to be? And we answer that question in Job 16. Turn there with me. To Job chapter 16 is verses 19 through verse 22. He goes from a state of complete devastation, hopelessness, to a glimmer of hope. And now notice he says that there is hope. And that hope is going to come in the form of a mediator. We read in chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. When a few years are come, then shall I go the way whence I shall not return. So we see Job is growing. No hope to a glimmer of hope. To, to, yes, there is hope, but who is going to, to be this mediator? And now we come to Job 19, and we find verse 25. Brethren, I believe that this particular one verse in the book of, of Job is the pinnacle. We find now this great prophetic statement when Job says in verse 25 of chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day. Upon the earth. Many times when we feel as if there is no hope, we must echo the words of Job. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Brethren, the whole point tonight about comforting one another with these words is this. As Christians, we are going to feel the pain of separation. We're not immune to that. We're going to have struggles. We're going to lose the ones we love. They are going to lose us. 
And even though we are not immune to the pain of separation, we can escape the pain of desperation. And that is what we find if you will turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I want us to see as we close this evening an event that took place in the life of Paul. As Paul is now speaking with the elders who were at Ephesus and no doubt he had grown to love them and they had grown to love him and there was a great connection there between them. And I want us to notice their departure. Beginning in verse 36 of Acts chapter 20, we read, And when he had thus spoken... He kneeled down, speaking of Paul, and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, knowing or sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. They accompanied him unto the ship. Brethren, that teaches us there that, again, we need not feel the pain of desperation even though we feel the pain of separation. We see that they would not have looked forward to seeing Paul on this side of eternity. But they had hope. They had that expectancy. They had that desire that they would once again be together. But not just in together in anywhere, but they would be together in eternity. And brethren, that is hope. That that is the hope that we can have in Christ Jesus. That we need not sorrow as those who are without hope. But tonight, do you have hope? Do you have that great expectancy? Are you praying and looking for the Lord's return with a great desire? Perhaps you're not prepared. Perhaps you're not ready for His return. That perhaps tonight you you understand and know that if He were to return tonight, you would not be ready and you would be found in a lost condition. Remedy that this evening. Be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24.